Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, most of which are heard on Upfront and the Talkies, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Rob Hurwitt, who has been for many years, up until a year ago, the theater critic for the San Francisco Chronicle, before that, theater critic for the San Francisco Examiner, before that, with the Berkeley Barb, with the East Bay Express, and for a while, having a show on KPFA. Was that weekly or monthly, or do you remember? As I remember, it was weekly. That's my memory now. Everything's a little hazy, because at that point, I was the arts editor at the Express and the theater critic, and freelancing a lot. So... It's all kind of a blur. It is one of those things that you look back and think, how on earth did I do so many different things at the same time? It was interesting. I I actually managed to make a fairly decent living as a freelancer for a while there. And the job at the examiner opened up. They asked me to come in and interview. Just at a time when I had been doing a monthly column for California Magazine, and they had gone under. I had been doing stuff for a couple of publications that went under within a year of each, you know, of each other. And I'd been working with a nonprofit organization producing a series of paperback volumes called West Coast Plays, which was an anthology of new plays that had originated on the West Coast. And they lost their funding right at that time. So a whole lot of my most regular freelance gigs collapsed just about the time that the job uh, at the Examiner opened up. So when they offered me a job, it was actually less money than I'd been making as a freelancer. But it was a steady job and one that you didn't have to run around finding where your next paycheck was coming from. And it had benefits. When you got the job with the examiner, was that as theater critic or was that more general? No, that was as theater critic. And what had you done in terms of theater criticism before? I had started a long, long time ago. Back in the 60s, I wrote some criticism. But I really started as a regular gig in 1978 for the Barb for a few months, and then I went over to the Express. So I had been covering theater regularly in the Bay Area since 1978. And I went to the examiner first. I was asked to come in. They wooed me (laughs) to come in as the backup theater critic to Scott Rosenberg when he was the theater critic. And then when Scott moved over to being the movie critic, they uh, asked me to apply for the job of theater critic. So that's basically how that happened. But before we go on to your stint at the Chronicle, There was a bio I read that was in the Chronicle. You were a red diaper baby in New York. Is this correct? Yes. My son claims to be a red diaper grandbaby or a third generation red diaper baby. And you had to deal with uh, McCarthyism, right? Well, I didn't have to deal with McCarthyism so much as my parents and all of their friends. But I certainly grew up among a lot of blacklisted people, a lot of blacklisted artists and people in other 
you know, their fields. My father was a surgeon who became chief of surgery at Montefiore Hospital, and he was not a member of the party. My mother was a member of the party. My father was what you might call a fellow traveler, <laughs> or what some people might call. When the, what did they call themselves, those patriotic committees that went around trying to get people fired from their jobs as everything from school teachers to janitors to uh, hospital workers, when they showed up at the hospital and tried to get dad fired, it was a Jewish philanthropic hospital the head of the hospital called my, the head of the board called my father into his office and said, Elliot, my father's name, anyone who's made enemies like these so young must have a lot going for him. <laughs> <laughs> You're our new chief of surgery. This was in New York? This was in New York. And at the time, as you were growing up, because these were artists, well, actually, I didn't grow up in a family of artists, and my mother went to the theater every week. Right. It wasn't a family of artists. My father was a doctor. My mother right. was a nurse. But there were a lot of artists in, in their circle. And during World War II, when my father was away in the Navy, my mother and another nurse rented an apartment in Greenwich Village that was just above a jazz club. And uh, all of the jazz artists would hang out at their place. So they had cultivated or had just gathered around them a whole group of friends. Many of them were abstract painters, jazz musicians, actors. Any people from the beat generation? No, none of the, <laughs> none of the beats. I discovered the beats for myself. Uh, what was your first show, do you remember? The first show I ever saw that I'm aware of was a production on Broadway of Peter Pan starring Mary Martin and Cyril Richard. I went to it thinking, you know, Peter Pan, I've seen the Disney cartoon. There's no way they can do that on stage. And I came out of it convinced that, boy, cartoons had nothing on live actors. <laughs> the first show I saw was Destry Rides Again, the musical, with wow. Andy Griffith and Dolores Gray. Wow. <laughs> My parents were theater buffs, so, uh -huh. you know, they went all the time. You grew up in New York? I grew up in New York yeah. as well. So, And that's the thing. You know, growing up, becoming a teenager in the 1950s and being in high school, you could go to the theater. You could get mezzanine seats for five bucks. My mom had it better. I talked to her about it. She began, she lived at that point in Washington Heights, only I don't think it was called that in the 30s. And she would go down at the age of 14 by herself, sit in the upper end of the balcony for 75 cents. And her first <laughs> show was I Married an Angel starring Vera Zarina, and I actually have a little slip of paper with her signature. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. At that point, we were when I was in high school, and most of my growing up was just north of the city, first in Hastings and then in, in Scarsdale in high school. And I could mow a couple of lawns and take a date to a Broadway show. You know, I mean, it was <laughs> that's basically what I did. You had the choice. You'd either go to the movies or you'd, you'd go to the, you'd take the train into the city and, and see a show. And it was perfectly affordable for a high school kid. What brought you to the West Coast? Then? I came out here to go to UC Berkeley to go to graduate school. And I came to Berkeley basically because I had a fellowship for one year of graduate school. And I thought, OK, I want to go where the Mark Twain papers are. 
Were you involved with the free speech movement? I, my one year at Berkeley was the year of the free speech movement. So that was the year I got my master's degree in English literature, although I really majored in the free speech movement. How'd you go from the Examiner to the Chronicle? The Hearst Corporation, which owned the Examiner, bought the Chronicle. Stephen Wynn was the theater critic at that point, and essentially what happened was when Hearst bought the Chronicle, Hearst had to sell the Examiner, which meant they had to pay somebody, what was it, $4 million to take it off their hands, and they merged the two staffs. All of a sudden, you had all of the people who worked for the Examiner and who worked for the Chronicle and who worked for the newspaper agency. Don't forget the newspaper agency, which was right. kind of the whole, what, digestive system of the, <laughs> of the, of the, the whole operation. So they merged the two staffs, and in a lot of cases, that meant a certain amount of redundancy, and within a few years, you'd had a lot of sorting out and a lot of people were gone. You could certainly see it in the arts coverage. Um, you suddenly had two dance critics. You obviously weren't going to continue to have two dance critics, and both of them seemed, neither of them seemed to want to work with each other anyway. I think Stephen and I, I think Stephen shared my, my feeling. It certainly felt that way. It was like, oh, my God, thank God you're here. There's so much to cover. One person can't do it. So the two of us were co-theater critics for the first few years until they began downsizing. Yeah, over here, I do criticism that's on my show on Mondays and on online and on the morning show on Upfront, and I'm not covering a lot because there's so much to cover. Yeah. Seeing a lot of shows, and after a while, I keep worrying that I'm going to get jaded. You know, it's funny. I don't feel jaded. It's been a year since I left the Chronicle as of April 1st, and... I've been seeing a lot of shows. I still go to shows. I don't feel like I ever became jaded. And people would ask me that over the years. They would always say, how can you see so many shows? You know, the point is when you're covering the theater, you're never seeing the same thing one night after. I mean, if you're, if you're going to, as you said, Sondheim on Wednesday and Shakespeare on Thursday and Sam Shepard on Friday right. and some brand new writer like Annie Baker, you know, how can you possibly get bored with that? It's totally different. The issue for me is that I'm a little less willing to accept, at least in my head, productions that aren't up to the value of other productions. Yes. You know, the joy in that sense it doesn't go away, but it modulates itself. Yeah, yeah. Here you are. You grew up in New York, as I did. You know, I go to see Desire Under the Elms. I saw Desire Under the Elms with George C. Scott and Colleen Dewhurst off Broadway. Right. You know, I go to see Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> There'll never be a fiddler to match Zero Mostel. You know, I mean, he created that role. More than just was the first person to perform it. You see Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and you think, you know, who, who is ever going to top Uta Hagen in that role? Well, I've seen it many, many times, and, you know, seeing Bill Irwin and Kathleen Turner 
was a, still a revelation to me, seeing it down at Santa Cruz, Shakespeare Santa Cruz with Paul Whitworth playing George was like, wow, you know, it gave me a whole... And I came into, the, into theater coverage having worked as an actor, starting in high school and through college right. and doing some professional, and having done Glass Menagerie and having read it many times, seen it many times, and having played both male roles in Glass Menagerie at one time or another. You know, by the time Berkeley Rep did Glass Menagerie, the first time they did it, um, I forget how many years ago, but back when I was a critic for The Express, I thought, okay, I'm simply not going to review this. But I did end up going to it. And I watched it, and sure enough, yeah, it was the same old show, and yeah, I didn't feel like I had that much to say until the gentleman caller entered, and he was played by Tony Amendola. And Tony Amendola did the gentleman caller in, brought out aspects of that part that had never, having played it, having seen it over and over again, it had never occurred to me before. And then seeing the more recent Glass Menagerie that Les Waters directed, with Rita Moreno, all of a sudden I thought, oh my God, this play isn't about Tom. It's about the mom. He's the narrator and it's his vision, but you're seeing these kids now through her eyes and you understand why she is such a horrible person because she's trying to save these children who are obviously not suited to make it in the world out, this horrible world of the Depression era America. They're, neither of these kids is going to survive. She's desperate trying to shape their lives. Class Menagerie had never seemed to me to be that play before. And as you're describing it now, the versions <laughs> I've seen haven't brought that out particularly. Yeah. Um, there was a version at Marin Theater which totally focused so much on Tom that she almost disappeared. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the temptation over and over again. Certainly it's the temptation for actors who go into it wanting to play Tom. And certainly it's a temptation for, you would think, for most male directors. And it's the way Williams wrote it. You know, Tom is Williams' stand-in if Williams were straight. But he is. He's the author's stand-in. He's the person you're seeing these people through his eyes. But that's not necessarily true. That's only assuming that Tom is a trust, you know, that you can trust Tom as the narrator. If you see Tom simply as another character and he's telling us we're seeing it through his eyes, doesn't mean that the director necessarily has to present it as our seeing it through his eyes. So on some level, and, you know, maybe there'll be a point as I see more shows, when I start seeing multiple versions, you kind of learn different things. One of the problems, of course, for the average theater goer is they don't necessarily do that. I mean, I've seen, yes. for instance, Noises Off is, is at San Francisco Playhouse. Yes. And I've seen community theater version in Hawaii that was magnificent. I saw the movie and now I've seen this. And you can kind of see the differences mm-hmm. and what they bring out right. and how the audience laughs. And that's great. Of course, if someone's seeing it once, they don't necessarily know that. That's true. And I'll tell you, when Noises Off first came out, and I saw the New York production, which I reviewed for The Examiner, and that was directed, I believe, by Michael Blakemore. If I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but that's my, my memory at this point. And it was one of the funniest things I had ever seen. 
I laughed and I laughed. I just roared helplessly. By the third act, I was laughed out. And I found it was very funny, but I was sitting there. I wasn't really laughing anymore. But this was the great production. This was the big Tony Award winning, you know, it was a fabulous production. Then Richard Side directed it. Richard Side, local director, one of the, one of the that core group of Ure- of uh, the Eureka Theater, where you know that commissioned Angels of America and all of that, and Richard Richard and Tony Tacconi and Oscar Eustace were the main directors with it. Richard directed Noises Off, not for the Eureka, but for Marin Theater Company, and Richard's production was a revelation. It was very, very funny. He was getting all of the humor, but you weren't laughing yourself silly. And it built so that by the third act, you weren't completely laughed out. The third act was actually funnier than the second act, which you'll remember is the one that takes place backstage. Right. Yeah. But the third act turned out, as Michael Frayn probably intended when he wrote it, to be the climax rather than the kind of letdown <laughs> at the end. And I thought, my God, this man is a genius. And it's not the, I mean, Richard's production of Cloud Nine remains by far the finest production of Cloud Nine I've ever seen, of Carol Churchill's Cloud Nine. Now, I haven't seen the production at SF Playhouse, but Richard's production, Marine Theater production, then went moved over to the Marines Memorial Theater and ran for over a year. It was a brilliant production and probably... I think, the best I've ever seen. So at that point, I kind of feel like, okay, if I were still a critic, I would go to this production at SF Playhouse. I would try to, you don't want to make, you know, to overdo the, oh, you should have seen it when. Right. Right. (laughs) But, But at the same point, you have now seen a production that has shown you what that play can do on this level. What's the name of that Royal Shakespeare Company director? Is it Tim Supple? Um, mm-hmm. Who directed directed a comedy of errors, a small cast comedy of errors that came through here from the, from the RSC that left you weeping at the end. It was hilarious, and at the end, when the twins discovered each other, yeah. you realized how much they had lost how much of their law of their time being together and you wept there were tears <laughs> rolling down your cheek at the end of comedy of errors who knew shakespeare never knew comedy of errors could be poignant it was a beautiful beautiful production so i think any time you see anything like that it makes a huge i'm so glad that tony tacconi is going to be directing angels of america again next year. He and Oscar directed the world right, premiere yeah. of the two parts at the Mark Taper Forum. Um, and he and Oscar commissioned the play in the first place. And the idea, I've seen many angels in, <laughs> in America's now, the idea that Tony is coming back to get, to take a new look at it as he winds down his, his I think, ama- really What's what's the word? I'll, I'll try to think. Spectacular, it. brilliant. Yeah, his, 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 his terrific time at yeah. Berkeley Rep. Berkeley Rep has been so lucky having Sharon Ott and then Tony. And Sharon Ott is another. All the years that I've been a critic, I have always felt like, in some respect, 
the three great plays of the modern Western canon, you know, not counting the Greeks, but is what I mean by the modern, right. the three enormous tragedies are King Lear, Heartbreak House, and Mother Courage. I mean, to me, these, these, this is like a, a grand trilogy, <laughs> right? And now we live in the gender-bending age where some actor could actually play all three of those, you know, Captain Shotover and Mother Courage and, and, uh, and Lear. All the years that I'd been going to the theater and as many times as I'd seen Heartbreak House, I had never seen it done the way I imagined in reading it. It could be done. And I was beginning to feel like, oh, maybe those critics are right. Like Harold Bloom keeps saying about Lear, it can't possibly be done as well as it reads, right? And you know that's not true because you've probably seen Lear on stage and, th- and been so blown away by it that yeah. you know Bloom is, is full of it. But maybe that was true of Heartbreak House. Maybe Heartbreak House really is. But when Sharon Ott directed it at Berkeley Rep, how long ago was that? Late 80s? I came out of it. It was such a joy to sit down and write that review because I thought, yes, yes, at last somebody has brought out the majestic tragedy that was George Bernard Shaw's reaction to World War I. It's all there, that whole climax and destruction of civilization that World War I represented to so many people at that time. I, I don't know if there's been any newer productions here in the Bay Area of it, though. Of Heartbreak? Yeah. I don't know. I can't think of any. It's funny because I know that Berkeley Rep had done it before. ACT had done it. Um, you know, I'd seen several productions of it here before that happened. Probably the worst production of it I'd ever seen was on the West End. I sat there thinking, oh, it's so good that Shaw can't see this (laughs) because it's exactly the kind of acting that he shredded in his own reviews. In terms of that, many years ago, I interviewed Michael Frayn for one of his novels. Actually, Uh I interviewed him a couple of times, and he said that there was once a production of Noises Off somewhere out in the sticks where no one laughed. A couple other things. I want to ask you about the difference between criticism and reviewing. And the reason I bring this up is about a year ago, I interviewed in succession John Lahr and A.O. Scott. John Lahr said, reviewing is just repeating what was already there. And criticism is something else again. A.O. Scott, of course, thought that was a load. Do you ever think about the difference between the two as a critic slash reviewer? I think the difference if you try to maintain a difference in your actual work, it would be very hard to do. I think that the best reviewers are critics. It does seem to me that at, at the most basic level, what you're talking about as a review is more of a consumer's guide kind of approach. Is this worth your money and time? And criticism at its best tries either to educate the reader, which means that the writer is actually trying to educate him or herself in the writing. The best criticism for me as a writer was always where I felt like, oh, I've really learned something from this production, and even I'm learning something as I'm writing, because the practice of engaging 
your mind with the minds that have gone into that production should, at the very best, <laughs> be able to maybe go somewhere where neither of you separately had thought of going before. But when I used to teach criticism, I would say that there are basically three parts to any really good review. The first is going to be description. And if you have the space, which I later found was going to be more of a problem as the space began to get smaller and smaller, but a good review should be able to give the reader a good enough sense of the production that you can visualize it as a reader of the, re of the review, that you can get a true sense of what it's going to be like, enough of a sense of what it's going to be like being in the theater, that you know, even if the critic didn't like it, that this might be something that you like. Or even if the critic loved it, that this is not the kind of thing that, that you, <laughs> you're going to want to want to be at. So it should be description. The second part should be evaluation, which is obvious what we're talking about, although can be not so obvious in terms of are you holding everything to the same standard of what good acting should look like, what good direction, good design should look like. And the third part should be the part where you expand, where you are putting this production or this play in the context of its genre, of the art form in general, of the times that we live in, not all in every single review, right. but one, you know, one of these or, or another in some way that you are advancing the conversation. And even if you're only doing that in a Shakespeare review where you have decided to describe the story of this play in a way that may not have occurred to anybody to describe it before, you think, although it's very unlikely given all the writing about Shakespeare that's been done. Right. <laughs> My things are three minutes long and mm -hmm. often include actuality, but the actuality, if I'm lucky because I'm doing these interviews once a year and I'm asking about each upcoming play and that mm -hmm. gives me something and sometimes I'll show up at the theater with uh, this little recorder. That part of it is the part that I get someone else to talk about, Tony Tacconi, or, mm -hmm. but in 500 words or less, it becomes really a challenge. Oh, it's a huge challenge. And you, you look at Lar, who was writing in The New Yorker, and what Lar did was something I thought was rather unique. You know, he comes out of showbiz. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> uh, he's born in the trunk. And he would continually integrate his account of the production with his knowledge of what was going on, including having interviewed the playwright or having interviewed the, this actor or this director or whatnot, Sometimes you could end up reading one of his pieces not having any idea what he, whether he thought it was a good production or not. Well, he says that's opinion. Right. Nobody cares about opinion. We right. all have our own opinions. But I'll, usually you would get his opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he says it, it's, it's often going to leak through, but right. he's not focused on that. Right. He said one of the issues with an opinion review is it's – we all have our own opinions. Right. What, what is the person learning? But that's basically what you're reading reviews for. I'm sure you grew up, as I did, probably reading reviews and reading movie reviews and reading theater Vincent, reviews. Vincent Canby and okay. Walter Kerr, sure. Okay. 
Now, what was the name of the movie critic that the New York Times, was it Bosley Crowther? Crowther before Canby, yeah. And was it Crowther? I think it was Crowther. Because what you do, I think, as a reader is you develop a relationship with a critic if you're a regular reader, and you know that critic well enough. Nancy Scott, who wrote for The Examiner for quite a while before, before I was in there, I loved Nancy. I very seldom agreed with her. She absolutely did not like experimental theater. I loved experimental theater. I loved not all experimental theater. I loved the idea that I would go to it. If, it, if I right. didn't like it, I would write what I didn't like. Nancy did not like experimental theater, but she would describe the work of Nightfire or Antenna or of uh, um, Soon 3. She would describe it so well that you would read it and you'd think, oh, got to see that one, right? Even though she was telling you how much she didn't like it because she did such a good job with that. The negative side of that is I, I remember reading a review once, which was, I don't like Woody Allen films, dot, dot, dot. And I'm thinking, why am I reading this? <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, I think it was Crowther who did the original review of Dr. Strangelove. He hated it. He absolutely hated it. The next morning, at 10 a.m., when I got to when my friends and I got to the <laughs> to the movie theater, the line was already completely around the block. Enough of us were regular readers of his reviews that we knew when he hated something that much that we were going to love it. And I I think that's the kind of relationship that any critic wants to have with the readers. They understand your voice well enough that they're either going to rush to something that you love or they're going to stay away like the play from something that you love because they know who you are. The two reviewers now who do that for me are A.O. Scott in The Times and Anthony Lane in The New Yorker. When I see A.O. Scott, I kind of know at that point based on that. It used to work a little bit with Mick LaSalle whose taste is totally different from mine where if he loved something, I would go, "Mm, not for me. Yeah, actually, with Mick, I have, uh, and, you know, obviously I know him as a person, and I have different tastes than he does, but our tastes overlap in many areas. So I know on some kinds of films, yes, I'm going to agree agree with him, and on others, I'm, you know, well, I think I'll see that for myself. What I found is that anything from before 1935, I trust him implicitly. <laughs> <laughs> Rob yeah. Herwood. A couple of questions, slightly different. Can you think of anything where you went in and it was so awful that you just didn't know what to do because you knew you'd see these people the next day? Yeah, no, that would happen a lot. I shouldn't say a lot as if it were a huge percentage of the time. It wasn't a huge percentage, but there would be several times a year. I remember once blowing up at the late Stanley Williams of of Lorraine Hansberry Theater. And it wasn't a production, actually, that he had done. It was a production that, that he was hosting, but saying, you know, I've set aside the space. The review has to go in. I trusted you. And this was a piece of total crap. It's not, you know, ready for primetime criticism. It does no service to these people to tell them how bad they are. 
it's not going to help them. It's not going to help the reader. It's, you know, you've, yeah. you've wasted my time and you've wasted this, and I trusted you. But there were certainly times when I would get back to my desk and sit there and think, how on earth am I going to deal with this one? When I first started as a critic, I felt like I was a phony or that I didn't know enough about the theater to be a critic. So I had to read. And there weren't any particular critics that I was following that I felt were role models. So I sat down and read a whole lot of theater criticism. And I read the complete theater criticism of George Bernard Shaw, which is a couple of volumes and well worth well worth reading. And I noticed that at one point he had said that people had complained to him that they knew that he was now writing plays. This was toward the end of his theater criticism years. And that he was submitting his plays to these theaters. And then he was going out and reviewing shows by these same theater managers, these same directors, these same... And how could he possibly not be involved in a conflict of interest here. And he said, and you're absolutely right. I am. It is totally against my self-interest to give a bad review to Granville Barker or to, you know, these various other. He said, but the problem is when I sit down to write about them, I can't help myself. I know that I'm writing completely against my own self-interest. I just cannot stop myself. I have to say what I, you know, and that's basically how I always felt. If you're not being honest with your opinions, with your readers, why on earth should anybody read you? What I was told for the morning show was if you can't recommend it in any way, don't review it. But that's easy for me right. because I'm only picking right. and choosing. Right. But for you, if you give a bad review to Berkeley Rap, you have to go in and you'll see Tony Tacconi. Now, if you're going to review all of Berkeley Rap, sometimes you'll give a rave review. But if you're going to Golden Thread, a smaller theater, for yeah. example, yeah. it becomes a little more problematic. Yeah. Or let's say Rhino... Yeah. Right. Yes. It becomes yeah. a lot more problematic, right? Yeah. In the latter years at the Chronicle, I stopped reviewing Rhino. It had been, when I was at the Examiner, it had been on my must-review list. And these are not review must lists that somebody else had given me. These were the lists that I had. Uh, Golden Thread was never on my must list. I would look at Golden Thread and think, boy, this is really important stuff. And I would try to pick, and with all of the small theaters, I felt this was part of my responsibility, even at the Examiner and at the Chronicle, that there was no sense, because I had so little time to get to the smaller theaters, right. the one show that I review at this company or that company every two or three years should not be one that I'm going into thinking, oh, my God, I hope, I hope they're up to doing this. It should be one that I'm going into thinking, okay, this is interesting because it's a new play or because this play is so seldom done or because doing this play at this time is particularly interesting. That gives me something to write about beyond the question of how well are they doing it. It becomes valid for 
covering the beat as a reporter as well as as looking at it as a critic. The times when you feel like it's the major companies like Berkeley Rep and like ACT, like Marin Theater Company, like Cal Shakes, like Shotgun has become and SF Playhouse has become, like the Aurora. These companies, you're just going to go to them and you're going to deal with them as the institutions that they are and you're going to try to be as frank and as honest as you can. Tony Tacconi, I've known Tony since before I became a critic, but not not that much. I've known him, but I've known him pretty much through his career. Tony has been somebody whom I've always felt I could speak to frankly and who always would speak his mind, who was always, I'm sure you found the same thing. He is the nightmare of publicists because he will speak, <laughs> he will say exactly what's on his mind. And there have been periods where I would not hear from Tony for a couple of months after I'd reviewed one of his shows. And it wasn't necessarily a show that he directed. Uh, it could be a show at simply at his theater. But I wouldn't hear from him until he felt that he could talk to me calmly. And, <laughs> and, and that's fine. There are other directors and actors who would always let me know exactly what they thought of my reviews. And I've managed and I've maintained a friendship with them despite <laughs> despite the displeasure that I have caused them and despite the grillings that they have given me over the years. There's another element, too, um, and it's something that when we went to the magic, I mentioned to you at that point, which is that if there's only one newspaper in town, I have the freedom to be a contrarian. Not that I necessarily am, but for the one theater critic that counts, being a contrarian could be problematic, I would think, and I know that you were not. No, I wasn't. I was when I first started, there's no question, when I first started writing for The Barb and for The Express. And I think probably most critics are when they when they start. <laughs> I, think, right. I think it goes with the with the with the job. I mean, I first started writing criticism because I looked around and said I couldn't stand any of the other critics that were writing in in my particular uh, area at that time, and uh, so I I started as a way of of counteracting that. When I first wrote criticism here in the 1960s. It was for the Berkeley Barb. The Berkeley Barb was advocacy journalism. I advocated for the Mime Troupe. I had just stopped performing with the Mime Troupe. (laughs) But we didn't know about those kinds of things. The first piece I ever wrote for the Chronicle was a pink section piece, even before I actually became a freelancer. I was was managing a, a theater called... Epic West on College Avenue, which was a center for the study and performance of Bertolt Brecht. And I had brought in Bread and Puppet Theater to perform. Bread and Puppet from Vermont. And I thought this was a huge undertaking. And I had them there for a week. And I had whatever it was. What did we have? 650 seats, I think. So I went to the pink to try to get a feature. And the editor of The Pink at that time, you know, I talked to him and I made my pitch. And he said, well, why don't you write the story? 
And I said, can I do that? And he said, yeah, sure, you know it better than anybody else. So I wrote my, I was producing this this show. (laughs) But the, you know, who knew about conflict of interest, even at the Chronicle back in in those days? Robert Hurwood, before I let you go, you have a couple of shows that you can recommend right now? Yes. The last time I saw you was at Baltimore Waltz at the Magic. I certainly recommend John Moscone's production of Paula Vogel's Baltimore Waltz, landmark play from the early days of the AIDS pandemic, and just an extraordinary piece of work. Very funny, very moving. I would also highly recommend Annie Baker's John. Loved it. At the Strand. Absolutely loved it. Fabulous. Absolutely. It's funny. It's tense. It is spooky in a way. I'm not easily prone to to, to, to horror shows, but it is. And it's spooky in a way that just kind of, you know, creeps up on you from behind. What it is, is it's a place set in an old house in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and this young couple have come to the house. You don't want to make the mistake of thinking that the young couple are the main characters. That's the (laughs) one thing I want to warn people against. Just watch it and be aware that that house is like the fifth character in the play. And that's about all I want want to say about it. But it's a beautiful piece of work. And Annie Baker is, I think, an absolute genius. And also Lenny at the Aurora Theater, play about Lenny Riefenstahl. Beautiful piece of work. Beautiful, probably not the right word. I think it's a fascinating piece of work. I love watching Stacy Ross as as the, and I'm blocking now on the name of the younger actress who plays Lenny Riefenstahl as the younger as the younger woman. But they do a beautiful job of moving in and out of who is playing Lenny at any particular moment. And I must say, I never paid much attention to Lenny Riefenstahl or any of the Nazis because of my upbringing. But looking at the film clips in that, they make an amazing case for her as I had never considered her place in the development of cinema. But what an amazing artist she was. You can't watch Olympia anymore because every shot in Olympia, you can only watch it for a few minutes, has been stolen. Lenny Riefenstahl's film, Olympia. Yeah, Olympia, yeah. yeah. Every single shot of swimmers, all of that, it's become... The cliche right. of Olympic coverage. Right. And she did it. She created it. She did it first. Yeah. And how on earth did she do some of those? Because she had to have had them run the race again or di- or do that dive again in order to take those shots. In Triumph of the Will, what I noticed is that you'd see Hitler waving and then you'd see a shot from Hitler's behind and right. there's no camera in front. <laughs> <laughs> right. And she did that. She created the entire piece, right? It wasn't really just Hitler going into Nuremberg. It was a completely acted and reenacted piece of film. Uh-huh. It was fiction. And in that sense, that play Lenny which certainly wasn't intended this way when when Tom Ross scheduled it for this point in the season, right. is this enormous comment on alternative facts, <laughs> the changing of the news and all the rest of that. Oh, we've run out of time. This will all go on the uh, podcast, and then I'll take 23 or 24 minutes. The review after that, I believe, is uh, actually going to be Baltimore Waltz, uh-huh. which I'll stick on, which... 
I didn't love the play, but I loved the production, and I thought Al Peroni was just... Isn't he good? Isn't he? Boy, I thought he was terrific. I thought she was terrific. She was great. And I thought Moscone did a really interesting job directing it. Also, I'd never met Paula Vogel before. She and Loretta were sitting right behind me. Robert Hurwitz, you left the Chronicle a year ago. Correct. First, what are you up to, and are you doing any writing, any criticism? No, I'm not. I'm not saying that I won't do any more. There are a number of writing projects I've had for a long time, some of which I think, okay, well, there's just no need <laughs> no need to do that anymore, and others that I really want to do. I did not realize when I retired how exhausted I was. The hours that I worked as a critic, I'm too old to be writing until 3 or 4 in the morning every night. I feel so much better since I retired, since I caught up with some sleep. (laughs) (laughs) But also, I feel like my health is a lot better not working those hours. It's taken me a year, I think, at least, to kind of find my footing. You know, after 40 years of doing that, it's of, of, of writing for a living, I probably needed a little time off.